There's a seductive temptation that has troubled the church for generation after generation after generation after generation. Really, we see from its very inception, in a way it defines the graphic difference between the religion of man here, tradition of Pharisees, and the gospel of the kingdom of God that Jesus, Mark tells us, Jesus has come proclaiming that he has come demonstrating in power and authority that he has come establishing and welcoming us into the kingdom. And, And that thing, that difference there goes by a few different names, but legalism, moralism, traditionalism, externalism, whatever you want to call it. But it's a gospel of man, a gospel of merit, a gospel of achievement that indeed is no gospel at all. And yet, as you look at the church, it's been alive and active throughout the entire history of the church. You look around the church now, and it is amongst us still. And if we're honest with ourselves, we look at our own hearts And it's alive and active in our own hearts. This tendency towards legalism, towards moralism, towards externalism can seduce us and and, and grip our hearts at times. It begins to define how we see ourselves. It defines how we see others. It can even define how we understand our relationship to God. It's because legalism it plays on our pride. It it plays on our desire for control, for autonomy. It plays on our nature to be judgmental. It even plays at our insecurities where we're just uncomfortable to exist graciously with someone who may do things a little differently, who may understand things a little differently. We, We just want that all to be just the same list of do's and don'ts. Well, that seductive temptation, legalism, moralism, traditionalism, externalism, I'll just call it legalism so I don't have to say every word each time. That's what our text deals with today. We've seen in Mark that the shadow of the cross falls across the ministry of Jesus Christ pretty early. We sort of narrowed it down to Christ as he heals the lame man and he proclaims in that moment, your sins are forgiven. And at that point, two things sort of happen. And one, he draws the line with the Pharisees and it amps up the animosity between the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and Jesus Jesus, in saying your sins are forgiven, is in no shadowy way (laughs) claiming to be divine, the Son of God. And the Pharisees will have none of it. They reject it. And so immediately tensions go sky high between the Pharisees and Jesus. And also, in saying your sins are forgiven, theologically, he is paving the way to the cross. Because in order for him to offer that and achieve and assure the forgiveness of our sins... It's going to take a substitute who pays the penalty for our sins. A sinless substitute. 
the Son of God, Jesus himself. And so the shadow of the cross falls upon the ministry of Jesus. And here in chapter 7, it heightens even more. Again, the collision with the Pharisees. We've seen already chapter 3, I believe it is, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the scribes, they get together to figure out how they can destroy Jesus, how they can murder him. He's embarrassed them. He's messing with their power, with their way of life, with the control that they have. And they're sick of it. They're looking how they can destroy Jesus. And here, in this moment, Jesus is making these claims about them as hypocrite. hypocrites and driving sort of a wedge between the gospel of man, which is no gospel at all, and the gospel of the kingdom that he is proclaiming. And so we see the cross fall more heavily, the path to the cross, the, the pace picked up, as it were, as Jesus heads in that direction. But also, if Jesus' diagnosis of our heart is right, which it is, we'll see that we are in a devastating circumstance without a substitute. If indeed the problem lies within and the solution lies without, that our heart is the issue, then we need a Savior. So in this passage, we see built even more the path to the cross. Jesus has just finished with some miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. He walked up on the water there with his disciples, and then he is about healing people, and people are bringing uh, other sick people for him to be healed, and he's teaching, and he's preaching. And so we've seen now this momentum around Jesus growing. Not necessarily faith in his message, but at least momentum in his popularity. They want to be around him. They want to be healed. They want to see what he is all about. Undoubtedly, the Pharisees are aware of this ground swell of momentum around Jesus and they are not pleased with it. And so it says that a delegation is sent from Jerusalem. Scribes, Pharisees head down from Jerusalem. Some 90, 100 mile journey is sent down with the point of observing Jesus, of confronting him, of entrapping him, of continuing in their plot to destroy him. In the first few verses uh, that you heard read for you from chapter 7, you see that the Pharisees got just what they want. They find his disciples eating without washing their hands. At first glance, you might think, well, the Pharisees have something here. That's kind of gross to eat without washing your hands, right? In 2020, we all became like hand-washing experts, didn't we? You sing happy birthday two times, or you wash your hands, do the whole thing. Maybe it's just like their COVID regulations. They're, they're seeing the disciples here. But Mark understands most of his audience is, is Gentile. And so he takes a few verses here to explain what is being said. It's not a matter of hygiene. It's a matter of tradition. And also we see in verse 5, it's not a matter of the disciples. It's a matter of entrapping Jesus. It's Jesus they're after. In verse 5, the Pharisees and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. All right, a little background. You have the law. You have the law of God that is given. And early on, the scribes and the Pharisees, where they felt that maybe the law was a little unclear or not specific enough, in what seems to be 
noble motives thought, well, let's, let's create a few sort of traditions or customs or codes around the law in order to help us not break the law. Especially you can think this makes sense when the Jews are spread out all throughout as captives and diaspora, they're, they're everywhere. So they're always around pagan influences and there's a temptation to compromise on their customs, on their faith. And so the scribes, the Pharisees, Jewish leaders start adding some tradition, adding some things around the law in order to help them keep the law. The problem is they just kept adding things and adding things and adding things. And pretty soon some of these points, some of this oral tradition and policies that they had start to become regulations now for the people. And then beyond that, it moves to conscience binding on all pious Jews. And it's moved so far that really the law, the middle of it, has almost become lost with the tradition of men that has been added and added and added, that they now are binding the conscience and regulating the righteousness of other people based on all these traditions that they've added. In fact, by two early or late second century, I guess, a hundred, a little over a hundred years after the writing of Mark, we have what we call the, the Mishnah, which is a, a, a collection of all of these oral traditions and policies put together in one gigantic volume. And if you were to look at the Mishnah, about 40% of it is, deals with what you are and aren't allowed to do on Sabbath and rules of cleanliness and purity. Now you look at scripture and the idea of washing your hands before certain things. There's a couple of verses in Exodus or something about the, the priests in Leviticus. Not a great deal. But then you look at the Mishnah and you just have page after page after page after page of this tradition that they have added to the law. And so that's what they're coming at the the people, that's what they're coming at the disciples with, or really coming at Jesus with, is they're not honoring the traditions. They haven't followed all of these steps. And you look, as Mark gives a little commentary, he kind of just shows you it. And it's not just washing hands in verse 4. It's, there's other traditions they observe, such as washing cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, and goes on and on and on. And really, the, it kind of seems ridiculous when you sit down and read all that they would walk through. Well, we see Jesus' response. Jesus is always is no respecter of persons. He's not going to be manipulated by the Pharisees. He's not going to be bullied by them as the people are often. And so Jesus is going to respond to them. And we'll see really four things about legalism that I want us to look at. Before we do, I do want just to remember here. Jesus is not criticizing the law. He's not flaunting the law. Jesus came under the law. He fulfilled the law. He doesn't criticize or flaunt it here. But when it comes to the tradition of men as being conscience binding and a mark of righteousness, he goes hard after it. And he's done so already with the Pharisees and he's going to do so here again. You see it in the Gospels, especially if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is teaching, he'll, he'll refer to Old Testament things or things of the past, and he'll often say, it is written. 
And when he does, he's referring to God's law, what has been established. But sometimes he'll say, you have heard that it was said. If you ever read that in the Gospels, especially the Sermon on the Mount, that area, Jesus is about ready to to take on the tradition of men. You've heard that it was said. That's the oral tradition that becomes the Mishnah. That's what he's talking about. So Jesus isn't going after the law here. He's going after the the tradition of men. All right. Legalism. As we look at it, just four simple observations from this text, this story, or Jesus' teaching, really. As we listen to them, my hope is as we hear these observations, we'll hear them personally. Because while all of us hate the idea of legalism, we also have a little bit of it in our hearts that's hard to shake off. Because we all have a little bit of pride and we all want control and autonomy at some level. And so I hopefully, as it's exposed, we can examine our own hearts and see, is some of this creeping into my life? Where do I need to work on this? So individually, and then corporately as well, we need to be honest as a church. Does any of this creep into the way that we function as a church? All right, number one, a legalist constantly evaluates the behavior of others and rarely evaluates his own heart. Constantly evaluates the behavior of other and rarely evaluates his own heart. That is to say, a legalistic heart is extremely judgmental. It has developed a a great skill at finding and pointing out the deficiencies in others, while it is completely inept at examining one's own heart. We see this with the Pharisees for sure, don't we? They've had a front row seat to Jesus' teaching. They've been amazed by his authority, by his wisdom. They've been astonished by his power as he heals the sick, as as he has seen this take place. And yet, they don't take a moment to evaluate themselves in the light of what God is saying. Because Jesus has said that he has come to save sinners. And so, you know, they're excluded from that group. They like the control that they have. And so they are quick to see every little spot where Jesus might have broken a Sabbath tradition or, or hear a cleanliness tradition and what's taking place. And yet they can't evaluate their own hearts. You know, we can struggle with this ourselves quite easily, can't we? Of having a condemning, judgmental spirit. You know, I think an easy place to do it is in parenting. You know, we have a lot of people with a lot of little kids. And the skill of seeing someone else make a mistake in parenting is a lot easier than evaluating your own heart in parenting. I'm just going to look down the middle so no one thinks I'm looking right at them here as a parent, all right? I'll look at my parents. They obviously did a perfect job. Look at me, right? Um, it's easy to kind of look and think, oh man, I wouldn't make that, oh, you talk about it. It's easy to develop that skill of, of seeing where other parents are, in your opinion, not doing it quite right. But never take time to evaluate or be blind to your own sort of hypocrisy and laziness and it, it, things that take place in your own life of parenting. 
I even think about it in the way that we listen to sermons. I've been guilty of it. I know that you've been guilty of it before. When you're sitting there listening to a sermon and thinking, man, I hope that the person two rows back is listening to this. (laughs) They need to hear this. Oh, if my boss was only here. Oh, my wife, my husband, they need... And we're quick to think, man, this is exactly what needs to be said to correct that person's behavior. And yet we're really slow in evaluating our own hearts before the Lord. If you see that as something, you, you know, pattern you start to fall into, just, just be aware, be warned. It's time to look, take a step back, evaluate our own hearts, to hear the word of the Lord and let it speak to our own hearts. That's why again and again we're, we're told in Mark, he has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to what is being said. Receive it with faith. Evaluate your own heart, your own life. Not as quick to judge the behavior of others. Secondly, going along with it, but a legalist is concerned about behavior, not the heart. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 as he quotes from Isaiah, he says, and he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of, your, of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. This term hypocrite, I always want to be careful when we throw this, because I feel like the term hypocrite, you've probably heard me say this before, but it's thrown out about people at the church pretty loosely. As if the idea of believing that there is right and wrong and and, and that there is sin or me standing up saying thus saith the Lord but then at the same time being a sinner and struggling with sin makes you a hypocrite that's not what's being said here I can stand up here and say to you thus saith the Lord and mean it with a genuine heart about hypocrisy and on Wednesday struggle with judging somebody That, that makes me fallen sinner in need of constant repentance and faith A hypocrite is someone who is purposely playing a part. That because I'm relying on my merit for righteousness, I need everyone to think I'm a lot closer to God than I am. And so I know in private, I don't care about it. My heart is far from the Lord. But in public, I'm going to play a part for you. I'm going to act in such a way instead of being honest about the struggles and sins in my life. That's a hypocrite. I always warn that because I think we can get charged with the idea of hypocrisy that like we shouldn't be standing and worshiping and singing and praying if we're struggling with sin. Somehow that's hypocritical. That's not the point. You're always going to be struggling. You come in the midst of that and worship. But you know when you're treasuring sin and putting on a show for someone else. That's what he's speaking about here. And so he says, their hearts are far from me, even though they confess me with their lips. They love rules. They love walking through the motions. Legalism loves the do's and the don'ts, and they're not so big on the grace. But Christianity is always a religion of the heart. It is always a religion of the heart. And that's someone who who really treasures the traditions of the Christian church. 
the things of old, the, the feels, the, the liturgies that you walk through, the cadence of a Christian life, those things that you, I feel, are incredibly healthy and important to be part of. But those can just be motions. We've made this point in Sunday school. I forget now who I'm quoting, but um, the, the difference between tradition and traditionalism. That tradition is the living faith of dead men. That is, those who've gone before and you, and you see that pattern, you follow after. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living men. Just sort of walking through the motions. And scripture is clear and plain again and again and again that it is a religion of the heart. And when it speaks of heart, it's that center, the center of who you are, where your emotions, where your, your priorities, where your treasures, where the essence of who you are, what leads and guides and directs you. It's not just a religion of do's and don'ts, of behavior, of you did the right things and didn't do the, the wrong things, or you said the right things. It's a religion of the heart. That's why we've talked about, we keep finding the disciples in the storm again and again, and wondering, why is Jesus putting them there? And we said, because the storms reveal the heart, the storms of life reveal the heart. It's in those moments that you start to find, where do I look for comfort? Where do I look for peace? Where do I look for purpose? Where do I look for my identity? Because when the storms of life coming, it starts stripping away some of those, those lesser things that you find comfort and hope and treasure in. And it forces you to turn to the Lord so that in those moments, He puts you in positions you did not intend to be in in order that He can produce in things you can, in your heart, things you cannot produce yourself. So often it's in the storm that our hearts are revealed. And so God goes after their hearts. That's why Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, if you remember, the, the Lord says, I, I, I hate your sacrifices. I, I hate your solemn assemblies. He calls them an abomination to them. It's not that they're doing the wrong things. It's just they're walking through the motions, but their heart is far from God. Always a good reminder for us to remember that it is a religion of the heart. How do we, how do we work on that? One, prayerfully. You just pray. Ask the Lord that he give you genuine love for him. That, that he would give you a heart of true worship. Another is that you're just more honest with the sins that you struggle with. That you're not putting on a show of being close to God and never getting close to him. I know people think, well, if I'm honest, I'll get judged. You know, that might happen occasionally. But I'll tell you, within the church, normally what happens is you're an incredible encouragement to someone else because it allows them to be honest with some of their struggles. And occasionally when you're judged, that's their problem before the Lord. Be honest with what you're struggling for. So again, another mark of a legalistic heart, concerned much more with behavior and not the heart. A third thing is a legalist adheres to man-made rules over obedience to God's law. Adhere to man-made rules over obedience to God's law. I'm going to read a little section here, verses 7 through 13. If you would follow along, he says, In vain do they worship me, 
teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. Verse 9, he said to them, in this a real ironic tone or sarcastic tone Jesus takes here, he goes, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And he gives an example. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me in Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. In other words, that's just one instance out of many. Legalists adhere to man-made rules over obedience to God. It's because man-made rules are doable. You can make a list and you can do it. God's law is not doable in our own strength. Because it's about the heart. It's not just simply about behaviors and actions. Man-made rules are easy to measure. And we like that. We like to see how godly we are at the end of the day by how many boxes we've checked. Man-made rules are easier to compare yourself with somebody else, your performance with somebody else. In some ways, it, I, it's safer. It's easier to trust your rules than it is to trust the grace of God. I think especially when you look at others, it's like if I just make a bunch of rules for them, I'll feel that feels safer than trusting that God is doing a work of grace in their life, changing their heart, that they will act and react in gratitude. And, and what happens is you see with them, and it, it can happen with us, is that we, we apply and reapply and redefine and redefine and reapply God's law so many times until we get it to something that we can actually accomplish on our own that we've totally missed the point of the law in driving us to Jesus Christ. And the ironic thing is, the, the more that you add to the word of the Lord, the more you subtract from it. Because the further you get away from what Jesus is wanting you to see, and the more you get into just man-made rules and traditions... So the Pharisees, in protecting God's law, what they are trying to do initially, in protecting God's law with all these traditions, instead of protecting it, they're weakening, weakening the radical elements, the radical demands of the law. Because instead of seeing that we come with nothing, that we are in desperate need of a Savior and turning to Christ, they've turned it into something that we can do. Again, none of us would espouse to that, except we can see in our hearts that it's easy to turn our Christian walk into that at times. Legalism works in a few different ways. It's very core, it's ugliest, it's justification by works. But then it can also be what we see with the Pharisees doing, binding the conscience of man where he is actually free. Trying to bind the conscience of man where he is actually free. Or thirdly, it gets a loophole of actually getting out of the law. And this kind of confusing story about Corbin in here, that, that's what's taking place. So what the example Jesus is using is saying, okay, the fifth commandment is this, honor your father and your mother. 
They care for you when you're little. When they're older, it's time for you to help take care of them. You need to honor them and care for them. And there's this thing in their culture called Corbin, which means I take something and I dedicate it to the Lord. That, okay, I'm going to take all my finances or whatever it might be, and I'm dedicating that to the Lord. I can only use it for the Lord. Now, within Corbin, I can also use it to provide for my own needs and care for myself. But besides that, it's for the Lord. And what's taking place here is these people have, are using this sort of as a loophole of obeying the, getting out of obeying the fifth commandment. And so it says, honor your father and your mother, but okay, I have this money, but I've already declared Corbin. I've dedicated it to the Lord, so I'd love to help, but it belongs to the Lord technically. I can't help you. And the priests are saying, yeah, that's right. Or uh, the, the Pharisees, that's right. Yeah, it belongs to the temple. It belongs to the Lord. And Jesus is saying, you see what you're doing. You're making traditions and you're going so far down the line that now you're breaking the fifth commandment just to keep your man-made tradition. And the only reason you have this is as a loophole to get out of obeying the commandment of the Lord. Legalism works in this way. And I would say the traditions of man can sometimes get in the way of obeying God that we put a heightened, such a heightened station for the traditions that we have with our church, with our family, whatever it might be, things that are not bad in and of themselves, but they get elevated above obeying the word of the Lord. And for those people, maybe you think, well, it's legalistic if you tell me I have to prioritize the thing. No, it's legalistic to elevate the traditions of man above the word of the Lord. And we see that in the heart of legalism. Fourth, finally, legalism misplaces the source and the solution to your sin. Legalism misplaces the source and the solution to your sin. I'm going to read verses 14 through 23. I'll make a few comments while we're reading it and then a few comments to close. He called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand in Greek, this is a very urgent call. He's telling me, hear me. You need to listen, everyone, and understand what I'm about to tell you. He's heightening what he's about to say here. And then he says it. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's not what is outside of you that defiles you. It's what's inside of you coming out. It's what's inside of you that defiles you. You see, we were tempted to think that our greatest need, our greatest struggle is outside of us. That it's the fault of somebody else. It's the fault of our environment. That the struggle, the greatest struggle is outside. He's saying, no, the greatest enemy, the greatest struggle that you're going to deal with is internal. It is a heart that is deceitfully wicked. We'll read on here. Verse 17. Jesus now moves inside. When he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. Even there, a little unclear. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? since it enters not his heart, 
but his stomach and is expelled. You know what he's saying there. And Marx makes a little comment, again, just in case us as Gentile readers are missing it. Thus he declared all foods clean. Enough with all of this tradition and extra ritual around clean and unclean and that if I'm with this person I can't eat this and if I was with them I got to do this washing before I can all of this enough with that there's nothing outside all food is clean there's nothing outside of you that's going to defile you what defiles you he'll tell us that here shortly verse 20 he said what comes out of a person is what defiles him For from within, out of the heart of man, again, that center, what controls him, who he is in his essence, out of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. See, the the Pharisees had a very superficial view of sin. It was just a matter of staying away from some things and doing the other right things. They were never addressing the the, the heart, where, where the sin comes from. And Jesus, in declaring that all food is clean, is declaring that all of your hearts are wicked and deceitful. When I was in junior high, early junior high, I have an older brother, we started this little mowing business. And uh, I still remember this very clearly. We're mowing in this backyard and there was this kind of rotten stump. I'd take the mower right around to the push mower and go right over a nest of mud wasps. And then you see there's one, there's two, there's three, then they're all swarming up. yanking my shorts down, running across the yard, leaving the mower running, I'm running. I'm sure it was quite a sight, got a few stings. But what I think about with that is when Jesus is giving a description here of the heart, it's like that nest of mud wasps. You see one pop, two pop, three, and then just out comes pouring all these wasps. That's kind of how you're reading this. From the heart comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, on and on and on. It just comes pouring out of the heart. That's where it all resides. Listen to Jeremiah 17. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, I search the heart and test the mind. Romans 3 passage on the depravity of man as is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one later on in chapter 3 for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin By God's grace, evil's restrained in our heart, but the truth is it all resides there. By nature, by choice, by action, we are corrupt, we are deceitful people. The problem is us. The problem is our sin nature. The problem is the heart of sin within. And a legalistic person just sort of whitewashes that to say, no, the problem is that your behavior 
doesn't line up with what I think your behavior comes. And so you mess up and that's defiling you. He's saying, no, your heart is defiled and coming out of that, like those wasps out of the ground, is all of this wickedness. So it's not the murder that defiles you, it's the, the heart of hatred that can hold on to hatred to somebody and want to see them dead. It's not just the adultery at the end that, that defiles you. It's the, the heart of lust that isn't satisfied in what God has given us and has twisted sexual things for our own pleasure. It's not the stealing. It's the heart of envy that, that isn't gr- grateful for what has been given to us but, but desperately wants more. You see, it's out of the heart that these things spring. And so because they have a wrong origin of the sin, a wrong problem, they think the problem is external, the problem is what you do, then they think the solution, a legalistic, external, moralistic heart thinks the solution is, well, let's just get more rules to correct that behavior. Instead of two rules, you need ten rules. That will help. And because they've misdiagnosed where the sin is located, they have misdiagnosed the remedy. And that's why we say the shadow of the cross falls across this text because we see the remedy arising in the message in person of Jesus Christ. If our hearts are wicked and the law is meant to expose that to us and to drive us outside of ourselves to find a solution because the problem is internal, the rescue comes from something external. We need someone who can pay the price for that sin. Who can do that? Well, someone who is without sin themselves. Otherwise, they'd just be getting what they deserve. How does no sin go unpunished and yet we are not punished, held accountable for our sin? Because Jesus Christ intercepts it on the cross. We need a Savior. We need someone who will die who will be raised to life. And thus the promise to us through Jesus Christ is that he can make us a new creation, give us a new heart. That we are buried with him and we are risen with him. Listen to the new covenant promises from Ezekiel 36. Jesus says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. The promise that we read in Revelation 21, Jesus sits on the throne and he says, Behold, I am making all things new. We need a Savior. We need to put our faith and our hope not in our performance, not by adding to the gospel, not by creating rules we can follow and judge others by. All of us have the same and only hope, Jesus Christ. And his promise is when our faith rests upon him, he will give us a new heart. He will set us free from the bondage of sin. He will make us a new creation. Let's be honest. Look at our own hearts. From time to time, 
legalism is going to pop up in there. Let's fight that legalism by the gospel. Let's be slower to judge others, the behavior of others. Let's be slower to judge our own hearts by our own lives, not just by behaviors and things we are doing, but by the heart. Let's make sure we haven't missed where the sin resides. It resides within the heart. And because of that, the need is the same for all of us. Jesus Christ, that he would make us new.